0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Katherine Brobeck.
1: I'm Kemper Donovan.
0: And uh, this week, while we are definitely talking about Agatha, we are talking about it with a very special guest. Who might that be, Kemper?
1: That would be one Tana French.
0: We've been wanting to have her on for a long time. Um, Long time listeners know that she's one of both of our favorite novelists. And I say that across any kind of genre distinction, she also has been like many of us, reading a lot of uh, Christy in quarantine. So I think had some very interesting things to say about that. And of course, we talked at great length about her work and her newest novel, The Searcher, which came out in the States at the beginning of October and is available from your local bookseller.
1: Yeah, this interview was an exercise in not gushing for me, (laughs) and and I believe also for you. I mean, I, you know, at several points was in danger of just losing my mind in the best of ways, as opposed to in the worst of ways, (laughs) which has uh, been more the case in these recent months. But it was really a joy to get to speak with her over Zoom, of course, once again. And let's get to that interview right now. We simply could not be bigger fans of Tana French, who has been delighting readers for over a decade now with her exquisite, gorgeously written novels. I think the L.A. Times summed it up best when they said she could make a Target run feel tense and revelatory. Uh, You know, might want to substitute Boots for Target, I suppose, uh, perhaps for our U.K. listeners, if that's not making sense. But um, that sounds about right to me. Tana has written eight novels to date, the first six are within the Dublin Murder Squad series, starting with In the Woods in 2007, followed by The Likeness in 2008, Faithful Place in 2010, Broken Harbor in 2012, The Secret Place in 2014, and The Trespasser in 2016. She then broke out of the Dublin Murder Squad with her two most recent novels, both of which are standalones, The Witch Elm in 2018 and The Searcher, which just came out in October of 2020.
0: Tana, I have to say that sometimes when we have guests on here, we have to do a little bit of catch-up. We have to sort of go through, you know, back catalogs of things that we haven't read. But I think Kemper and I can safely say that uh, we didn't really have to do that here because I think that we had pre-orders for most of your uh, <laughs> most of your releases after In the Woods. So, um, yep. you know, we are delighted to have you on to talk about um, your work. And again, it is an Agatha Christie podcast, so we would be remiss to not touch on that <laughs> a little bit later. So, um, you know, we're uh, so happy to have you here, and I know that our listeners are going to be very excited as well.
2: Oh, cool. Thank you so much for having me on. This is this is great. I'm very honored. And also it's wonderful to have a chance to talk books with mystery lovers. Absolutely. I know,
0: especially during especially during the lockdown. I think it's been so delightful to have that opportunity. Like even if it's with our listeners or with writers or experts, etc. It's just that it's been one of the brighter spots of being stuck in our houses for months.
2: <laughs> oh yeah god knows i think books have been more essential than ever because we all need something that's going to take us out of this reality for a few hours here and there And i've actually been
0: rereading tons
2: of agatha christie along the way
0: you know that's really funny we've heard um we've heard this from multiple people including booksellers that they can't actually keep christie's on the shelves <laughs> yeah
2: I'm not it's
0: like something something about it i think is comfort food um in this yeah, time you know
2: You know what I think it is? I think it's not only you get a world where you know from the start that everything's going to be sorted out, the crisis will be over, good and bad, will be neatly put where they belong. But also, in Hagatha Christie, everyone always manages to move on without being particularly traumatized by anything that's happened. And I think we all want to know that that's a possibility right now.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, well, supposedly that's why they had such a, you know, boom period during the, you know, interwar era originally, right? Because people were so traumatized that, you know, why not turn to a mystery novel to at least have the world made whole again?
2: Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, people get, people drop like flies in Agatha Christie. and At the end, everyone's like, well, that was very sad, but all right, let's move on.
0: <laughs> it may not be realistic, but it's kind of nice for a break. It is. I mean, we'll, we'll circle back because I think that our, our, we rank the novels at the end of every novel episode, and so uh, our currently number one ranked Christie is actually Five Little Pigs, which oh. might be one of the few Christies where it's kind of not resolved. At the, I mean, yeah. we know we know who done it, but yeah. you know the sort of trauma is still very real and there.
2: Yeah, that's true. Actually, that is one of the ones where there seems to be some kind of. Reverberation or repercussions, and yeah, that's interesting that that's suddenly gone to the top.
1: I think that's probably one of the reasons. I mean, it, it's funny, and we can talk about that now because I I was thinking about this exact issue when I was reading The Searcher. In particular, because I do think there are there there are many Christie novels where that is true, and and there is more of a neat rather than a messy ending. But you know, there are some, and some of our favorites, such as Five Little Pigs, and even The Hollow, and Ordeal by Innocence, which is actually the last novel that we uh, covered. Where we're at novel fifty of sixty six. Wow. <laughs> wow. But, you know, there are a lot of reverberations and loose ends of a, a you know, of a personal sort that I think linger um, at the ends of, of those Christie novels. And that's something that I would say um, is very much the case in your Dublin murder squad. Um, books. There is always an element of who done it in those books, and we are, you know, we are given the satisfying, clear answer at the end of those books as to who done it. But there's always this element of be it personal pain or some sort of greater um, crisis or just a, a lingering unresolved issues, um, which is part of you know why I find your books to be so powerful um, and to work as well as they do. And I almost felt like in The Searcher, there was a little bit of the inverse of that because it's not a whodunit. And, and I guess we should probably start, especially for readers, um, who might not have picked up the searcher yet, since it's your most recent book on just, you know, how in some ways this is a bit of a departure, um, you know, for you compared to the Dublin murder squad, um, books since at the center of the story, you know, we have a disappearance as opposed to a murder. And, um, you know, I, I think we can get from the title itself that this is a little bit of a uh, an Irish Western uh, of sorts. So I'm just curious, you know, how did the setup for this book come about?
2: <laughs> how did this happen? Yeah, it is. It's weird. It's different for me. It's, it's third person. It's much shorter. There's an American protagonist rather than an Irish one. It's rural rather than Dublin set. I've been reading a lot of Westerns around the time I started kind of bouncing ideas around for this book. And I I loved them. And I also thought, thought that their settings had a lot of resonances with the West of Ireland. Like you've got that harsh country that demands real physical and mental toughness from anyone who wants to make a living off of it. But you've also got that sense of a place that's so remote from the centers of power, both geographically and culturally, that the people feel like the power brokers have no idea about their lives and don't really care. And if they want a cohesive society that functions, they're going to have to make their own rules and they're going to have to enforce those rules themselves. So I was thinking, what about taking some of the tropes of a Western and setting them in the West of Ireland, and seeing what works, what needs to shift, what needs to be transposed, and one of the ones I really wanted to work with was the stranger in town. You know how he shows up in so many westerns, and he sort of he rolls into the saloon and he 's got a few secrets to keep he doesn 't say much about his past, but you know when he shows up, things are going to change around him he 's going to be a catalyst, like the order of the town is in some way or other going to be disrupted. Maybe he'll like shoot the corrupt sheriff and everything will be set to rights, or maybe he'll do the opposite and cause devastation, but he's going to be a disruptor. So that's why I ended up with the American, because, you know, Ireland's small, even if you're from across the country you're going to know somebody who knows somebody who's from this little tiny town. And playing Find the Connection is like a national Irish sport. So (laughs) Noreen, the local kind of shopkeeper and information repository, she'd have that connection pegged inside an hour if he was from anywhere in Ireland. And that would define his relationship with the town. So I was like, okay, he has to be from a different country. And seeing as it's sort of a Western-tinged mystery, an American seemed like the ideal nationality for him to be.
1: Yeah, well, and we've read so many stories, obviously, of the immigration from, you know, the Ireland to U.S., story. I love the idea that this is this is the reverse happening in the present day um, and quite believably rendered, too.
2: (laughs) Thank you. He's kind of I mean, he's the old retired gunslinger who's gone somewhere that he thinks will be peaceful and not drag him back into his old way of life. And yet, of course, you know, in every Western, the old gunslinger gets dragged out of retirement for one more mission. And this time it's this teenage kid who shows up demanding that Cal investigate his brother's disappearance.
0: Were you by any chance reading a lot of like True Grit before? Yes.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, I mean but the ones that I the ones that came most to mind for me were the movie Shane and True Grit, the obviously too and you know like hints of lonesome dove and there's like um i i love a good western and obviously the title is a shout out in some part to the searchers yeah yeah definitely yeah
2: it wasn't so much the ones that i was reading i mean i read the searchers but it wasn't so much one of the ones that i felt seeped in as much as yeah lonesome Dove, true grid kind of the sisters brothers the idea of um People who are on separate journeys, who run into each other on this trail where they're both looking for separate things and end up influencing each other's journey in ways that they didn't really expect or even want at the time. That's, that was one of the things that kind of showed up. Lonesome Dove has a lot of that. People crisscrossing on different journeys and somehow influencing each other's progress. Absolutely. Right.
0: And also in, in all of them, again, it's the old guy who just sort of has one foot out, but is going to do one last cattle drive or, <laughs> you know, solve one, last, solve one last, you know, crime as like a marshal or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that also the other noticeable thing really about this one is that there aren't police in it.
2: Yeah, definitely. That was one of the things that, that was a conscious thing because after the first six books, I started thinking, right, I have looked at the process of a murder investigation six times from the perspective of a detective. And while I'm, I'm fascinated by that, I'm fascinated by Multiple reasons that someone might choose that career, and what might happen when they realize that it's not exactly what they imagined or doesn't provide whatever it is that they're looking for from it. There are so many other perspectives involved in a murder investigation as well. There's the victim, there are the witnesses, there are the suspects, there's a perpetrator. And all of those have valid points of view that tend to get sidelined a lot in the detective novel. Now, not universally, there are a lot of people who do cover those, but the detective novel is you know, defined by the detective. And I started thinking, I'd like to give some space and voice to those other perspectives. So in The Witch Elm, the narrator is, he's all of the others. He is victim, witness, suspect, perpetrator at different points in the book. And at the point where he tries to be detective, it doesn't go very well for him. But with this book, Cal is in fact a retired detective, but he's a detective who has rejected everything about that profession, who has discovered that it is not, in fact, what he thought it was, which is a basically a steady job where you can fix things and set things to rights. And he's come to the conclusion that it isn't that, and it's not only that, but it doesn't allow him to be what he would consider a good man who sets things to, right and, to rights and does right by people. So he has moved this far away from home, partly in order to get away from a world where he was a detective and yet finds himself being drawn back into it. But from a point of view where he has none of the accoutrements of the detective, he has none of the the, the armory. He can't, you know, phone up the technical guys and go, can you go through the missing person's phone for me? He can't say, all right, let's run the missing person's associates through the system and see what pops up. He can't do any of that. He doesn't even have a gun, you know, at the beginning of the book, which is one of the things that was an obvious part of his armory as a detective. So he, is, he has only the interior weaponry of a detective left, his mind. He has none of the exterior weaponry, none of the backup. It's him on his own in this strange landscape, trying to not be a detective and yet fulfill a detective's function. So he's in an odd point on that borderline.
1: Yeah, no, I watching him or, you know, going on that journey with him in, in terms of the those obstacles that he's facing when he doesn't have any of those tools was, you know, part of the the fun or at least the the fascination of the book. I mean, I think it's um putting that, you know, just putting this in context with the rest of your books and even with with Christy to a certain extent, you know, I don't want to spoil anything in the searcher, but I don't think it's really spoiling, spoiling things too much to say that there's not a whole lot of legal justice that is achieved at the end of, of the novel. Um, but I was struck by the fact, and this is just, you know, my readerly impression, obviously, but I was struck by the fact that there was much more of a sense of resolution or at least peace. Um, achieved by our main duo, which would be Cal and you know this this young teenager who has um, asked him to to find a family member that they they seem to achieve a resolution that. Felt um, a lot more significant and deep to me than what so many of the characters achieved in your Dublin Murder Squad books, you know, which were told from more of that traditional viewpoint. And there was one little excerpt toward the end of the novel that just really blew me away, and I and I just want to read it out because it's beautiful as so much of your writing is, and I and I just think it it helps kind of highlight this point, um, which is when Cal says, uh, or the narrator rather says his throat is full up with the words to say into the phone to set that powerful familiar machine in motion cameras clicking and evidence bags opening and questions firing until every truth has been spoken out loud and everyone has been placed where they belong. And, you know, that's what would happen in a Dublin murder squad book, right? It's like (laughs) the official people out. Let's bring this all out into the light, sort everything the way it's meant to be sorted. And we know by the end of the book that if that happens, the bit of grace, kind of, that these characters do achieve would not have been achievable, and the, that statement on, I think, legal versus moral justice is really powerful and one that even, you know, Christy makes uh, time and time again in some of her, some of those yes. best books that we were Murder of the Great Express and all
2: of that, yeah, yeah. especially yeah, yeah. That, that being the classic. Definitely, I thought a lot about that because. It, you know, being a Western, Westerns are so deeply involved with the idea of morality and of its complexity, you know, of how mostly good people can sometimes do bad things and vice versa and how there are situations where there might not be any right thing to do and it's hard to cope with. And Westerns, they don't try to deny all this complexity or or gloss over it or fix it, they just lay it out. And so once you're writing anything that's got Western influences, I felt like it had to be quite involved with the idea of morality. So for Cal, that's a big thing. The idea of how do you consider yourself a good man? How do you define the right thing in a situation where there may not be a right thing that fixes everything? He's used to thinking in terms of, you know, if you do the right thing, there will be a solution, and everything will be fixed. So what do you do in a situation where that isn't possible? And he does have to redefine his idea of resolution along the way and so does Trey, the kid he's dealing with. Both of them have to redefine their idea of what would constitute a resolution to this case. I mean Trey goes in there going, I want my brother back and Cal goes in there going basically I want you to go away and leave me (laughs) alone so that I cannot be a detective anymore. And both of them have to redefine What a resolution is going to be, and Cal especially has to frame it in terms that are very unfamiliar to him, because as a detective, he's been used to the idea that legal resolution is resolution, and it's been brought home to him that that's not necessarily something that functions on a moral level. So, I think one reason why they do have that kind of that grace and that sense of homecoming, maybe at the end, is because they have been willing to redefine what counts as resolution from their point of view and accept what's there and what's most important rather than trying to force the narrative in the direction that they originally had planned right right i
0: mean i think there's also a little bit in that case then also the question of are you going to like what the results are what you get in that's a christy That's a Christy thing too. You see it in, you know, Sad Cypress and you see it in um, Five Little Pigs where somebody goes to like Poirot usually and he says, you know, I will happily look into this for you, but I have to tell you, you might not like what you find.
2: Right, and if I start, I'm not going to stop. So are you sure you want me to do this? Yes. (laughs) It's the same in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd where Flora goes to him and goes, "Um, will you find out what really happened? He's like, are you sure you want me to do this? Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's
2: always that. Uh, that sense that you, once you've started that ball rolling down the hill, you're not going to be able to stop it. And I think in Christie as well, you get the characters who are willing to go with it, end up with a much better resolution than the characters who halfway through go, oh, no, 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 This wasn't what I had planned. I'm going to have to force thing. I, I want to force things in the direction that I had planned, which of course in Christie never works out because Poirot is always smarter than they are.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, you have obviously addressed that before. I mean, it happens a, a little bit at, that is what Broken Harbor is, right? That there is a lot of like, oh, what did we actually get into here? Yeah. There are resonances, especially of that, I think, because, you know, the sort of ghost development in Broken Harbor has a little bit in common with the Wild West, even though it's a suburb, right?
2: Yeah, kind of. Although I think... Okay, I was aiming for, in some ways, psychologically, the opposite of the Wild West, because Broken Harbour, or, or at least people who thought they were getting the opposite of the Wild West, because Broken Harbour is all, it's people who are doing what they're told, who think they're doing the right thing. Right. Okay, this is how you go about having your life. You've got to get the family and the job, and then you've got to get the mortgage on the house. And all right, you know, with we were in the middle of a property boom. It's not possible for you to get a house in a built... A proper neighbourhoods where you have friends, family, roots, so you buy this house off plans in the middle of nowhere that has no infrastructure at all and no street lighting and, you know, half-built construction zones all around your home, but you're trusting that this is the right thing to do because you've been told it's the right thing to do. So I think that was a lot of people, a lot of characters in there who were trusting other people to tell them what was and wasn't the right way to live their lives and who are very into following the rules and then who get then get are devastated psychologically as well as financially when the rules turn around and kick them in the teeth. Whereas the Wild West stuff and the searcher are more people going, I'm gonna to have to figure out right and wrong for myself. I'm gonna to have to create my own morality because what's being provided for me, I don't think is okay. So I think psychologically, they're sort of opposite ends of the
0: spectrum. Almost opposite enough that they're circling to some degree back. Because, I mean, we obviously yeah. have, we have the same thing in the States to an extent, right? That there's a sort of rural-urban divide that's increasingly become mm. worse in the last 20 years. And you see it a lot in the sort of dying of small towns in the Midwest, as an example, where the young people leave, which is the same premise as in The Searcher. Yeah, Um, You know, where you have all these old bachelor farmers. um, And then, you know, if you're losing the young, you end up with these sort of abandoned homesteads. You end up with little infrastructure and you end up losing business. And it's in large part because a lot of those people went to the cities or the suburbs to try to buy their McMansion, only for that to fall apart too.
2: Yes, yes. I've always been really interested. I actually wrote a college dissertation on this, on the... um, the outsider in society and how those two constructs kind of conflict back and forth between them. And this is a big thing in Irish drama, like you have kind of the outsider in society and the tension between the two of them. The Playboy of the Western World is one of like the classic Irish plays and that deals with the stranger coming into town and upsetting the established order. But what you can get in the kind of society you're describing, the rural town where too many people are leaving and too many people can't break out even if they want to, is you get a society that has made its own rules, a kind of outsider society, which has rules that are just as furiously enforced Mm -hmm. and with just as many penalties as the rules of the larger society would be. I mean, it may not be that the police will show up and cart you off to jail if you break the rules of this small, isolated society, but there will be consequences. There will be punishments. So this society becomes just as strict and as formalized by its own codes as the society that they are, in some way, feel themselves exiled from. So you're right, stuff circles around. And that's what's going on, sorry, in The Searcher, is that Cal, who should be a representative of authority because he is, you know, a retired detective, comes into what seems like a slightly outsider remote town, but he becomes the outsider and they become the formalized society whose rules he needs to follow.
1: Yeah, I could definitely feel that and I was I was also struck by how you portray him grappling with the shifting, you know, morality codes of being a police officer in Chicago and, you know, trying to figure out what it means to be moral. And there is kind of an extended sequence in which Cal is talking about why he even left the police force and the idea of words that we use in terminology, not necessarily equating with a moral code in the way that he feels some perhaps more young people do. He even calls himself out. He's like, maybe I'm just, you know, turning into an old coot, who yeah. <laughs> you know can't deal with you know the the young ones on Twitter and whatnot. It, you know that whole passage made me think of Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah. oh, but yeah. leads to a question, you know, I know some reviewers have noted that it was it was a pretty bold, potentially risky choice to make an American cop your hero protagonist in 2020. I, I and I'm just curious how you approached the character and those issues as you were writing the book. You know, given the state of where we are in the U.S. and the world. <laughs>
2: That was not easy and I hope I got it more or less right because one thing to point out is that the entire tone of policing and the relationship between police and community is very, very different in Ireland. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's perfect, it's very far from it, but just the, the fundamental understandings. Are, are they're, they're an entirely different thing like just for a very basic couple of things the police force is called the Garda Shekhana, which is the guardians of the peace which is what's supposed to be their role now of course you know that's an ideal it doesn't always turn out that way but that's the premise on which they're based and they don't carry guns which makes for an entirely different relationship with the community if you're stopped by a policeman who you know is armed it's an entirely different thing from being stopped by a policeman who you know is not armed. It's just the tensions, the patterns. Like, our, I I can't remember the last time the police here shot anyone. I think it was about 10 years ago. There were two guys uh, in the middle of an armed robbery on a post office. So it's just a different relationship. Again, we have police brutality. We have police racism. But the whole tenor of it is very, very different. So I knew it was like, okay, hmm. I'm biting off a lot and I'm going to have to be careful with it because you never want to be that person going, okay, I'm sitting over here in Ireland and I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong over there in America and how you should be doing it. So that's really not what I was aiming for.
1: It's not really like that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But again, you have to, I think, if you're going to deal with an American policeman, even a retired one at a time like this, deal with the fact that he is whether or has been, whether he likes it or not, part of an institution that's deeply conflicted and problematic. I mean, his line in there is he came to the realization, one of the reasons he left was that he came to the realization that one or the other of them, him or the job, couldn't be trusted and he can't tell which it is and so he wants to disentangle himself from the job in order to figure out whether it's that he has lost touch with his moral code or whether it's impossible to have his moral code within a job like that. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, that's, I just tried to focus on the fact that one person can be dealing with his morals clashing against the institutions rather than trying to deal with the entire institution, which I don't think I have any right to try and take on from, again, my faraway perspective.
0: Yeah, of course, the interesting thing about that, right, is that so he leaves because he can't distinguish between the sort of code of the, you know, the thin blue line. Right. The yeah. sort of police fraternity. Um, and yet, ironically, what does he go and find when he goes <laughs> yep. to town? He finds he finds the same setup because the you know town itself is operating under their own equivalent of a, basically a thin blue line. Yeah, and a code
2: of silence, Mm -hmm. which is a very, very Irish thing. And I think it's probably got deep historical roots where for centuries there was British rule, which came with extreme oppression of anything that was culturally, religiously, linguistically Irish people got very accustomed to keeping everything under wraps because it was the only way to be safe. And then once you got out of British rule, you got basically Catholic church rule, which also came with... a very, very vicious imposition of an ideal that this is now a perfect holy Catholic country where everyone is innocent and pure-minded, which of course wasn't the case, but everything that didn't fit that illusion had to be ferociously suppressed and hidden. So this idea of keep whatever you say, say nothing, is a very Irish thing. So he runs into it with different roots, with different nuances, but it's the same thing of say nothing but he's coming at it from the other angle where he's the person who's being kept in the dark. Yeah.
0: That's an extremely interesting point. And culturally, I mean, it's, it's also interesting to think of Ireland as an oppressed place because obviously it was for centuries.
2: Yeah. I mean, some people I think would probably say that to an extent it still is. I mean, the Catholic church was consulted in the writing of our constitution they still run 90 plus percent of primary schools of hospitals they're very much involved and try to be more try to keep their involvement in legislations and there's quite a push to separate church and state but we're very far from there so I think Ireland has a very fraught relationship with how you deal with larger powers, to what extent you say, oh, yeah, 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 I know we'll do exactly what we're told, and then find sneaky ways around that, rather than going, actually, no, we're not going to even pretend to do what we're told. Very, yeah, very strange, complicated, and not necessarily healthy relationship with larger powers.
0: That's sort of making an aside about this, but, you know, it is interesting from our perspective, stateside, that... Actually, it seems in recent years, the sort of liberalization, perhaps, of Ireland, sort of the moving a little bit towards um, a further break from the Catholic Church, in part, I think, is actually much more progressive in a bunch of ways than what we've seen happening in our country. Yeah, different trajectories going on here, very different trajectories, I think,
2: yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, we... I think Ireland's got a lot to be proud of in how far we've come, where just a few years ago we became the first country in the world to legalize marriage equality by referendum, by public vote, rather than by legislation. So that shows you how the mentality has really moved forward. But I think because... Like we didn't really have the 1960s, you know, when you guys were liberalizing and, and agitating for civil rights, women's rights. We didn't really do that. We're kind of still in the 60s, 70s. So I think we're in a different pendulum swing from you guys.
0: To circle back to The Searcher, I wanted to ask a little bit about... You mentioned, of course, that it's the first book that you've written in the third person. And so what I find interesting about that is it as a result, also is sort of your most reliable narrator.
2: Mm, yes. Yeah, because
0: definitely. All, because all of your other books are marked by um, a massive quality of unreliability in the narrator. That's something, of course, I love as a reader. And, you know, you could make the argument, I suppose, that all narrators are inherently unreliable because you're only being told one perspective, right? Even if it's a third person, somebody's writing it, you know. But I kind of wanted to know a little bit about how that affected your process in writing it and what that was like to sort of make that change.
2: Oh, yeah, that, that was... That was a lot of fun, I have to say, because I'm like you, I love unreliable narrators. I have, sorry, total tangent here, but I kind of think they go to the heart of what the arts are about. Because the point of a good book or a play or a painting is that you see the world for a moment from somebody else's perspective. And we are all unreliable narrators. We all see the world through our own kind of our biases and our fears and our needs and what we're thinking about in that moment. We see everything through that. So when you get inside the mind of an unreliable narrator and you're seeing this world that's skewed to his or her perspective, that's as close as you come to being within another person, to being really just intimate. With another person's mind. So I think unreliable narrators are the ones who most go to the heart of what the arts are for, which is giving us somebody else's world. So this was a bit of a shift. It was kind of necessary because for me, the process of writing is very much defined by the main character. Like the shape of the book's world is defined by the character's mind. And Cal is an action-based guy. For him, what you think, what you say, what you feel, those aren't actually that important it's what you do that matters it's your actions when it comes to again morality your thoughts the words you use those aren't issues of morals what you do is an issue of morals i, mean, I don't necessarily agree i'm a writer of course i think words are important but i'm defining this book of him so it had to be much more about his actions than about his thoughts and if you if you're doing first person narration you kind of have an obligation to let the reader into the person's thoughts. Otherwise, what are you doing in there? So he had to be third person so that the focus would be more on what he does rather than what he's thinking. And it was a big switch because it's almost more like being an actor in some ways, where you have to make sure that every movement of the characters and every line of the characters show your audience what's going on in their head, rather than being able to, as in first-person narration, just tell the audience what's going on in their head. You have to be much more subtle with with actions and dialogue. So that was an interesting switch. I liked doing that.
1: Yeah, it also affects, I think, you know, even though it's, it's obviously a construct within a novel when you have a first-person narrator, it doesn't mean that someone is literally sitting down. Sometimes it does mean that someone is literally sitting down and writing the manuscript that you're reading. But It certainly feels that way. And I think it really works for this book that he's not the kind of person that is sitting there and looking at you and and sharing and kind of opening himself up. That is not who that character is. And I think just that distance, just that little bit of distance really helps solidify who he is in a crucial way for the reader. But yeah, I mean, I had the same question because often you find that people go to third person when they simply want to be able to shift perspective in the story and tell scenes without that character, but that, you, you know, you stick with him. I mean, we are, we are with Cal all the way. So it's fascinating to hear your very specific, uh, writerly reasons for why you did that. That makes a lot of sense
2: that's actually a really good way of putting it what you said he's never looking back at us basically he's we we can watch him but a couple of my other narrators there, there have been kind of a sense i'm thinking about the witch elmer in the woods that the narrator is almost looking back at the reader and trying to desperately explain themselves to the reader or justify themselves to the reader cal isn't looking at us at all there's no sense that this is being, that his actions are being narrated with a reader in mind. That's, yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. I, I, you're right. I hadn't thought of it.
1: There's, it's almost like you're, you know, by telling a story, you're unburdening yourself. It's like you're tearing yes. the load, you're taking it off. And he is, that is not what Cal does, right? It's like he, no. <laughs> he burden and he keeps it steadily on his shoulders and he deals with it. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. You, you, the rest of us are irrelevant. He's doing his own thing. Yeah. He's that Western guy, you know, one man dealing with his own burdens against the world. And yeah. in some of my other books there, there was, I was very aware when I was writing it, that there was an objective for the narrator in telling this story like Rob Ryan and in the woods. I hope it comes through that he feels a need to justify himself to someone out there, not to maybe, you know, any specific reader, but someone out there. And Cassie and the likeness, I had in my mind that she was in some way memorializing the murder victim, memorializing Lexi. Lexi needs to be remembered, whoever she was in her many shapes, But there was a need to get this out to somebody else. Whereas, yeah, Cal has no needs from a reader.
0: Although Cassie is actually kind of doing two things, that she's memorializing Lexi, but Cassie's also the most troubling part of the likeness, I think, is she's an actor. Right? I mean, that's yeah. essentially what she's doing. So, yeah, she you know, her reliability is, of all of of all of your narrators, I mean, I think that a lot of people would go to Rob as the least reliable because, again, what did happen is in his childhood? I assume yeah. maybe you know. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. We won't put you on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Cassie, in some ways, is the least reliable because she's playing a part.
2: Yeah. She's always one step removed by one extra step from the reader. But Cassie, one of the things I focused on a lot when I was writing that book, is she tries very hard to be truthful, both to herself and to everybody else. I, I was thinking a lot about characters like, like uh, Viola in Twelfth Night, Who is in this completely crazy situation where everybody involved is frantically deceiving themselves and other people. And she has to deceive other people for her own safety. But she tries to do it truthfully, like she's constantly playing with language in order to be truthful. And I thought a lot about that. You know, somebody who essentially wants to be honest in a situation where they can't speak, how do they manage that? And to what extent can they keep hold of any form of integrity while? constantly deceiving everyone around them. To what extent can they avoid deceiving themselves? And I think that is probably an open question with Cassie. To what extent is she able to be honest with herself, with the reader, how much of this is entirely reliable and how much has to be seen as part of her needing to justify her own deceptions?
0: Right. I mean I think that it's um that's an interesting case in comparison to the searcher too, just because in fact both she and Frank Mackey at some level are sitting on the sort of, like in a liminal zone because so much of their career has been on the very fringe, right, of the murder squad. They have, you know, they're the undercover people. They're the people who are not sort of existing in the day-to-day normal police thing. And so they are already the outsiders even within the system in both of those books.
2: Yeah, definitely. And they both see the system very differently. I mean, for Frank, the system is basically something to be messed with at every opportunity he is not somebody the rule follower or anything like that and so their relationship with the entire framework of the institution that they work in is a little bit complicated and a little bit almost adversarial not quite because they're still within that system but frank in particular does not consider it to be it's something that he must obey at all times. It's more like, you know, the, the, the prankster kid in the school. The school's there. It's got its rules. But that doesn't say they have
0: to be followed. They're just interesting opportunities. Than well, fix- right. If it's not written down specifically that you can't do it, then <laughs> it's a gray area of whether or not you can.
2: Right. And even if it is written down specifically, there's probably some way around that. And even if there isn't, Hey, if you get the results, someone's going to forgive you. It's all, yeah. The, the, the boundaries are starting points rather than end points for him. Right. That, was, that was a lot of fun to write. I have to admit like these people who are looking at everything and going, Hmm, what could I do with that? That might be more interesting.
1: Frank <laughs> Mackey is, you know, I think both Catherine and I yeah. are favorite.
0: We oh. we have we both, we have a running joke that we have a giant crush on him, which says something probably terrible about both of us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he would probably be really hard work. Really hard work.
1: Sure, but just... hard. But it, it actually this brings up a little bit of a global question about the Dublin Murder Squad series in general. And I think one of the most striking things about what you did in the series is that rather than picking a series detective protagonist like Christy and, you know, so many others did, you know, you take a more minor character from the previous book and then make that person the first person detective narrator in the next. And I'm curious just how you came up with that structure. Like, if you knew when you were writing in the woods that Cassie was going to become the... No! No?
2: (laughs) No, I had no idea. I don't plan ahead. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm kind of winging it the whole time. But when I finished in the woods, I was going... Oh my God, if by some chance somebody buys this and publishes it, and if by any chance they want another one, I should probably start thinking about that. And I was thinking, okay, the the traditional thing to do is to stick with the one series detective. And I love reading those series. But I was going, then you're sticking with them through kind of the more minor ups and downs of their lives. And what I like writing about is the huge crossroads points where you know that, okay, the detective has to make a decision and whatever way they decide, that's going to define the rest of their lives. And you kind of can't throw in those turning points every two years when you have a deadline because the detective's head's going to be wrecked. He's going to be in a straitjacket by book three. So you kind of can't do that. So it was that or just follow the minor ups and downs. And you know I, I wasn't as interested in writing that or switch narrator. And I had this idea of a detective coming to a murder scene where the murder victim looked exactly like them. That's all I had. I had no idea how that was going to pan out, or but I thought that would be a really interesting thing with stuff about identity and and your past and how those interact. How where is your identity with if you shift it to within a different, a whole different setting? I thought, you know what? Actually, that would thematically fit very well with Cassie who has a kind of dislocated past because her parents died when she was young. She's half French, so she doesn't consider herself a complete insider here. That whole idea of identity and belonging in the past, that would match her really well. And I also, I like the idea of shifting perspectives and seeing the same events from a different perspective. Again, I think it it goes back to what I think the arts are about, is that idea of realising that somebody else's viewpoint can be as valid and as vivid and as real as yours, even though it is utterly different, even though they're living in a world that is utterly different from the one that you occupy right next to them. Mm-hmm. Seeing that difference and giving it space is one of the things that fascinates me about the arts. So I thought I kind of like this idea of having this Dublin Murder Squad world, and having these overlapping characters see it entirely differently, so it sort of snowballed from there. And then I wrote the likeness, and I went, "Oh, Frank is fun. I want to write him some more." So there we go.
0: <laughs> Thank goodness! Thank goodness! Because I think I think I've given a faithful place to like three different people as gifts. Because I'm just oh, like, okay. just like this, this is a good. This is like I don't have to think about it. This is already I know a perfect gift. So here you go. Oh,
2: cool. Thank you so much. That's actually the one I give to people mostly because I'm like, okay, it's not too terribly harrowing and it's got some fun. And in some ways, I think it may be the one that works best and most cleanly because I may have bitten off a little less there and actually been able to chew it all.
0: You know, it's interesting. Again, the searcher is different because it's set in a small town and instead of, instead of in Dublin but there's something about the liberties in Faithful Place which is very much a small town.
2: Yeah oh they are they really really are my husband's from there so I have like a second-hand insight but they've in that neighborhood has goes back for centuries upon centuries and the people it's changing a little bit now you know as, as people move in and people can't afford to buy where their parents did and you know it's, it's being gentrified but was very much the kind of neighborhood where your relationship with somebody was defined by the fact that your great grandfather and their granny went out together for three months back in 19, God knows what, and then had a fight. The relationships are defined down the generations and everybody had a relationship to somebody else in some way and could explain it to you. I mean, you would lose track after about the eighth degree of relationship, but they definitely did have a link. And it is, yeah, it's very small town.
0: I mean, it's, yeah, very much so. I, I thought about it when I was reading The Searcher, but I, um, my childhood best friend lives in a very small town on the Canadian border by Winnipeg. So I go and see her, you know, once a year or so, and she has a little girl. And so the last time I was up there, we were driving around this small town, my, her daughter and me in a golf cart. <laughs> Yeah. As one does, because very small town. And yep. so I, I walk into the diner and I'm going to pick up food for their whole family. And of course, I have this little girl with me who's like clinging to me. And I start getting quizzed by people. <laughs> and I mean, not like who are you, but who do you belong to? Right, yes. And it was, and so I like, I have a trump card there that I can pull because I you could name drop. So, like, <laughs> it was ultimately okay. But it was so much that sense of, oh my gosh, do I have to like go back through like my family history to you? Is that's <laughs> the only way that I'm going to be able to walk away.
2: <laughs> yep. How do we fit you into our puzzle? Mm-hmm. Where do you fit in? And what are your connections? How do you link? Yeah, very much the same thing. in the liberty very much the same thing in small towns.
1: So are you uh, going to write another Dublin Murder Squad
2: book? <laughs> oh, I okay, at some point. But at the moment, I'm having a lot of fun with the standalones because it was a bit scary with Elm actually, because with the six Murder Squad books, I've right, set in place a world. I know who the state pathologist is. I know who the head of the Murder Squad is. I know what the hierarchy is. I know what the building is, where they work. I've got all of this in place. So I've got a framework that I can work within. And with Elm, I basically was ditching it all and had none of that to rely on. But I really enjoyed it. I really liked it, not having those boundaries already in place. So I think I'm sticking with standalones for a little, but there are definitely characters and stories in that murder squad that I would like to play with, that I would like to see where where I can take.
1: We'll hold you to that. I suppose we can't create a schedule for you. We can't hold you down to a date. But just knowing that at some point in the future, be it distant or nearer, we'll get more Murder Squad. That'll have to be enough.
2: (laughs) I'd like to. I have to say the one person who I do feel like I'd love to come back to sooner or later is Frank Mackey.
1: Oh,
0: Oh, well, (laughs) now we're good
1: to go. I can live off of that for like (laughs) 10 years if I have. I
0: know. When he he shows up again in The Secret Place, I think Kemper and I were both like, yay! Oh,
2: good. Thank you.
1: I'm curious what it was like having your work adapted, too, because, you know, there are these major productions of In the Woods and The Likeness, and I believe there are some more of the Dublin Murder Squad books are about to be adapted as well. Well, I don't know because they
2: did—they bought the option on the first six books, on the Dublin Murder Squad books, but I don't know whether they're going to go on to a next series. They haven't said anything to me. It was an odd experience because initially I was under the impression that what they wanted to do was an adaptation of the books and I was going to be involved to some degree, not hugely. But then it gradually became clear that what they had in mind was a complete reimagination basically from scratch. And I went, man, I'm not going to be useful here. I'm going to be the author in the corner going, "Eh, excuse me, it's not like that in the books. And (laughs) nobody needs that. That's not useful to me or to them. So uh, listen, you guys do your thing. I will be over here writing the next book, which is my thing. I know you have a load of good actors on board, so you can't go too far wrong. So I don't know how much the adaptations have had in common with the books, but again, great actors. And I have to say, I really loved the idea of actors and crew getting work off something that I set in motion because I, I was an actor I know how hard it is for actors to get work and in Ireland it's, it's even harder so I really like the fact of actors getting work
1: Yeah I mean it's such a fraught thing the changes that one can make in adaptation and we deal with this a lot obviously with Christy who has been Oh yeah adapted, you know, uh, just to such a, an insane degree at this point. And I mean, it's funny because Sarah Phelps, I believe adapted, um, yes. your, your novels and she's adapted a couple of, of Christie novels, uh, famously, some would say infamously. I mean, there, there is a lot of controversy over the changes that she's made. So it's, I all feel like we have a, a live <laughs> example here in that Something similar was done with your novels in that they really were completely reimagined. You already said it was odd, so it it, it must be odd, but it sounds like it it was overall a positive experience.
2: Well, I, I didn't see the adaptations because again, I think I'm the last person who should see a complete reimagination because again, my, my entire reaction is going to be, uh, that wasn't like it wasn't in the book and that wasn't like, and that character would never do that. And that's the exact opposite of what that relationship, oh, come on, you know, mm-hmm. that's not, I'm not going to appreciate the good sides.
1: You haven't watched them.
2: Nope. I'm not, I don't think I would, I think I'm the last person who would appreciate them.
0: We, I, I have to say we were, um, Cumber and I were both very confused watching the adaptation because we thought it was an adaptation and I was watching it myself and was sitting you know in my cozy bed or whatever like super excited to see this adaptation and maybe got an episode in and was like what the (laughs) what's going on here (laughs) right
2: yeah, no. I my information comes mainly from because of having been an actor, I, I know a lot of actors around, so I'll run into mates who have been working on it, and who'll be like, "Yep, all going well, all going well." And then they'll, I'll be, like, "Excellent, great, sounds good." And then they would mention something about the filming, and I'd be like, "There's a wolf." Okay, <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: <laughs> but they all seemed like things were going well, so you know you've got to trust in that. I yeah. mean, we we just covered our last novel, "Wizard Deal by Innocence," and. Oh, yeah. So we watched the, again, I think Kemper was referring to the infamous adaptation, Sarah Phelps' adaptation of Ordeal by Innocence, where she completely changes what happens. And, you know, as one of the mainstays of the Christie canon, it's a little bit shocking to see. because (laughs) It's just like, that's not what the book is about. Yeah, it's interesting.
2: I always wonder what... What's the thinking behind that? If you have this wonderful idea for a story that isn't the Christie story, why not do that? Why not do it separately? If you have this idea and you're all charged up with it and good to go, then do it. But why,
0: why tie it in with the Christie? That is the question because it's taking, I guess, IP and putting a totally different story on top of it. I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not coming down either way in judgment on that. I do think it's odd.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested in what's what's the thought process behind that because clearly she's got just a, a explosive imagination that's coming up with all the stuff. But if it's so far from the Christie. Why do you need the Christie? You've got enough ideas to keep an entire library going for decades, clearly.
1: Right. I think it, I, I think it's complicated because sometimes, you know, we never want to approach these books or adaptation of these books from the purist's standpoint, in that, you know, you can make yeah. no changes and it has to be exactly as you because then it's like, well, what's the point of adapt mm. at all? Obviously, you know, you're doing a change of medium. So sometimes there are different ways to tell a story visually on screen as opposed to textually on the page. So obviously. Obviously, that requires. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And sometimes you might even have a different angle on something. You want to bring out, a, you know, a certain aspect of the story more. So I don't even have changes with that. It's. I think it's just a level of degree. At some point, the departure becomes too much perhaps and you know for me the ordeal by innocence adaptation it became too much but you know we talked about this in the episode Sarah Phelps I think did a really interesting job uh, adapting the ABC murders which was uh, you know another one of these recent BBC adaptations even though that one too has a lot of detractors I think there's a lot to say for the way that she's telling what is recognizably Christie's story at some point though perhaps it just doesn't become recognizable as the same story and then I have the same question as you which is just tell a new story <laughs> at that yeah,
2: point. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's always an interesting question. Where's your borderline? Yeah. And, you know, you get you get this in literature as well. You get stuff about what's what's an adaptation, what's an entirely new thing. Like, you'll get fascinating refractions of books. Like you take Jane Eyre and then Wide Sargasso Sea, mm-hmm. where it doesn't pretend to be the same book, but it's definitely, it's a refraction of the same book through an entirely different lens. And I love that. Yep. I love that thing where you're going, okay, I'm going to take the bounce off that book and take it somewhere totally different. So I think there's definitely room for art that's influenced by other art. I went to see, this is total tangent, but I went to see a Vermeer and, I can't remember the exact title, but basically Vermeer and his buddies exhibition at the National Gallery a while back. And they had them arranged so that you could see how Vermeer and, his pals had done basically exactly that, where one person would do a painting of a girl looking out a window, and another artist would go, "Oh, okay, but what if I did a girl looking out, out a window like this? Oh, okay, well, what if I do a girl look, looking out a window?" So they were all responding to each other. There's art responding to art, which I think is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I, I actually I love that, and yeah. I think that that happens in literature as well quite a bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that that sort of correspondence playing off of one another, I mean, you see it, you see it in a lot of literary groups. You see it with like the Bloomsbury group, right? You see it, um, one of my best friends is a member of the uh, LIPO, the sort of French literature collective of like experimental French literature. And um, they do entire sort of conferences even based on, you know, taking one poem and how do you transform it into something else based on, you know, various mm. guidelines, etc. cetera. It's, and, and that sort of thing is fascinating when you're looking at an original text and what you can do with it.
2: Yeah, how you can respond to it. But I think there has to be an element of it's a response to something. Yeah, I don't know. Where's that borderline? It's very interesting. What makes the difference between something being an adaptation of or just a distortion of or a response to? Yeah, how do you define that?
0: This last weekend or the week before, they uh, released a new version of Rebecca on Netflix. And I'll say I watched part of it. That's the nicest thing I can say about it. <laughs> but it's basically, it's basically, they took the Hitchcock version. They didn't really add anything from DeMaurier's book to it. And oh. it's just like they flattened out the Hitchcock version. And it's at Ooh. some point, it's like, why, if you already have a perfect adaptation yes. of something or so close to it, you better be doing something interesting or insightful if you're going to go back to it, you know? I mean, otherwise, why reinvent the wheel?
2: Yeah, why are you doing it? It, and it? Especially if it's already perfect. I remember a couple of years back, somebody floated the idea of doing a remake of The Princess Bride and the internet basically lost its mind going, no, why would you do that? It's perfect. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Put that down. <laughs> I can see that. If Unless you have something new and at least as good to add, then put that down, Yeah. Yeah. I,
0: saw, I saw some note, like, not that long ago that they were going to remake Clueless, and I, <laughs> I was just, Clueless itself, talk about refractions, Clueless itself, right. Emma. And
2: there is an example of something that does, in fact, add and relook at the original and brings something new and fresh to it, while being an adaptation and a reimagination, but keeping the thematic underpinnings and all the relationships that make the book matter and all the, the little um, nuances that make the book. Completely new lens. Yeah.
0: But they were going to remake it. It might have just been one of those internet rumors. And I'm sure also that was squashed because I think, I mean, I was like a tween when that came out. And I mean, I would just probably take a blowtorch to some things. If
1: <laughs> Speaking of refractions and influences, I'm, I'm curious which mystery authors you identify as major influences of yours as you've been writing i'm curious if christie would be one of them and you know perhaps others both of the golden age and more contemporary
2: i wouldn't identify christie as one but i kind of think that Probably she was, whether I know it or not, because I read all the Christie's as a teenager. And I I think if you're reading that and then you end up writing mystery, something's going to have to have seeped in. Whether it's just the idea of of how you structure, how you balance characters, how you seed clues, something's going to seep in. I mean, I would probably identify more with people like Patricia Highsmith, Mm -hmm. who are so much more where the big question isn't. Who done it, it's what goes on inside the main character's mind, and how do they get from A to B. How do how does the main character transform over the course of the book? Like I'd say Highsmith was the mother of psychological crime, and I find her absolutely fascinating and chilling in the way she plays with the relationship between the character and the reader. Like where she can get you, like with talented Mr. Ripley, where you are rooting desperately for the killer going oh god don't let him get caught oh no 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 much too close get him out of there get him out of there and also with the way that she's interested in how someone can go from being like in strangers on a train a normal person leading a normal life how their mind can be eroded to the point where they actively try to kill another human being how she's interested in all those little nuances of personality the little shifts and I am fascinated by that. I always loved that in her. So I'd say that's definitely an influence in there. And I always come back to Dennis Lahan as well, who with Mystic River, which I read not long before I started writing in the woods. I read it and it. that and The Secret History by Donna Tart are the books that basically taught me, OK, the supposed boundary between genre fiction and literary fiction is rubbish it's nonsense it's never existed you don't have to choose between on the one side you know you have gripping plots but not much characterization not a lot of thematic depth the writing is workmanlike and the other on the other side you have well probably there's not a lot of plots but there's beautiful writing and there's three dimensional characterization and there's all this some intricate thematic exploration you don't have to choose between the two of those you can aim to have it all like mystic river is definitely a gripping thriller but it's also beautifully written. It's a family saga. It's a social history of a neighborhood. It's a coming of age story. And he has absolutely no truck with the idea that you have to pick one. He's like, no, 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 I'm doing it all. And the same with secret history. It's a masterful thriller and it's a masterful work of literature. So, you know, why not go for it all?
1: And speaking of echoes and refractions of other books, I mean, you can see in in the best of ways, I think, echoes of the secret history in the likeness um, well,
2: thank you very much. I'd be honored to think so because that was another thing Donna Tart did for me. You get so many books about family, right? And so many books about romance. But you don't get a lot of books where the focus is put on friendship and on the immense power it has. Mm. You don't get a lot of books where friendship, close friendship, is presented as being so powerful and so emotionally charged that it can make a fit setting for murder because the emotional charge is so intense. It's usually, you know, a friendship is sort of a side relationship in a lot of books. It's the thing that takes place in the subplot, while the real relationship, which is the family or the romance, is at the forefront. So she was, I think, the first book I read that had gone, no, those close friendships you make when you're that age, they are hugely
0: important. For sure. I mean, Mystic River, though, also, I mean, you're talking about very close-knit communities of people who essential. I mean, at a certain point, if you've been friends with people long enough or close enough to your friends, they are your family. Yeah, especially
2: at that kind of that secret history age, where you're sort of moving away from your home family or birth family, you haven't started building another one yet. So those friends, they define you. I mean, there's a passage in, in the secret history where he talks about how his tastes are still formed by that year back in college. You are defining yourself in terms of your friends. You are making each other into who you will be. You're shaping each other. And that's powerful stuff. They are your family at that age.
1: This is a little bit of a tangent as well, but I read something recently about how, um, in terms of musical tastes, the amount of new music that one listens to, as this is, of course, just, you know, the, the average person, there are lots of people who are avid music listeners who will expose themselves to new music when they're 40 years old and 60 years old, but you tend to acquire whatever your musical taste is in your 20s. And that's when you're kind of opening yep. yourself up to all the, you know, just like what is out there and you're willing to go to shows and, you know, see a band you've never heard of. And then that really solidifies by the time you're, you know, reach about 40. But <laughs> I have to
2: say kids help with that. Cause I've got a very musical seven-year-old. So they bring home stuff and they go, Oh, listen to this, listen to this, listen to this from, you know, whatever musical thing they're doing. So you do find your tastes being really open so you said you've got a little kid as well so I bet you'll have music being brought into your life and you find a whole new generation of stuff
1: yeah something to look forward to
0: it is <laughs> and I'll just be over here listening to like the strokes from like <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> there's always room for
2: that
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious uh, since this is an Agatha Christie podcast um do you have a favorite Christie
2: oh god I've got a couple from a writer's point of view I think it's It's kind of hard to ignore Roger Ackroyd because that was such a game changer. And I still remember being a teenager reading it for the first time, and it blew me away because I had never read anything that did that before. I was going, oh, my God, you can do that? You can mess with the rules like that? You can just take the rules and tie them in a knot? Oh, wow. So I think Roger Ackroyd, from a writer's point of view, it's very hard to ignore the influence that's had but me personally I really like Sleeping Murder I just I like that initial premise that she comes to this place that she's never been before but she knows things about it that she couldn't possibly know and I love the use of the line from Duchess of Malfi I love the cover her face mine eyes dazzle she died young I think it's just it's got a haunting atmosphere that I'm not sure any other
1: Christie quite matches for me well, I love your answer for two reasons. One, I was going to parse the question into what's your favorite Christie as a writer and a reader, but I didn't. So I'm, I'm <laughs> so annoyed that you did. Um, and two, you know, sleeping murder is the very last of the Christie's and we're covering them in chronological order of publication. So oh, wow. that really, I don't think anyone has identified that one as their favorite Christie. So that, that really gives us something to look forward to, and I believe that the original title, while it was in a vault, you know, for decades since she wrote it much earlier in her career, um, that the original title was "Cover Her Face." But Edie James published. Yes, he's got one called "Cover Her Face." Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what about you guys? What's your favorite? five little pigs <laughs> in case, in case nobody, every single person listening to this podcast knows that so yeah. um but you know again roger ackroyd um the thing about it is she's breaking the rules but she's mm. not in some ways the clues are all there she like yeah. played totally fair and so yeah, it's all there that space and she and he even points it out at the end look there's that
2: space there didn't lie never lied yeah
1: yeah the whole sort of project that we're doing is to rank them. So I suppose by the end, we will be able to speak definitively to which are our favorites. You know, right now, Five Little Pigs is in our number one spot, and then, but it's technically tied with And Then There Were None. And Then There Were None is such an obvious sort of choice, but I do find it kind of impossible not to point the brilliance of that novel. It's, it's one of those ones that has, it's so foundational Almost that it's, it's like when you're watching a movie. I was actually just just recently my my husband was watching A Few Good Men actually the other night, and I happened to walk by as the you know what do you want? I want the truth. You can't ha- <laughs> you can't handle the truth. <laughs> and I was like, it doesn't even play anymore because it's so in our fabric as m- moviegoers that it doesn't feel like an actual line that people would say, but that you know. <laughs> of the highest praise and I almost feel like you could say that about the entire novel and then there were none mm. that premise. Um, it's just brilliant.
2: I don't know. And then there were none. Now, the atmosphere is unbelievable. and its It's got a, a higher level of tension and fear and, than any of the other Christie's. But I've never liked it as a reader as much as most of them because I don't feel like it has an arc that moves anyone anywhere in some way it starts off on one trajectory and it keeps going on that trajectory right. and you wait for a shift and I, I, yeah I, I keep looking for that shift
1: it is an it, utterly nihilistic book I
2: mean,
1: The book is just utter it's nihilism i mean it's yeah. which is so. it's it's actually outlier uh, Christie. and i think oh, yeah. part of reading them as we're doing in order is that we tend to probably overweight the books where she's doing something a little different because she did have something <laughs> she did very well and that she did often. And, and often those are the books that give the greatest pleasure in the way that we were talking about at the beginning of the interview. You know, when you sit down and you're like, I want to read Nagatha Christie, you're usually talking about a Taken at the Flood or Lord Edgeware Dies or a three act tragedy or something like that. Not and then there were none or even Five Little Pigs. But yes, I mean it's it's unusual because she's usually not that nihilistic and just pitch dark.
2: I like some of the darker ones. I like Endless Night, I think is what I I really like Endless Night. And I like, um, I love Five Little Pigs as well, which are, again, not the neat, cozy ones at all. But just for some reason, Five Little Pigs seems to me to have an arc to it, a movement, a a shift in its terms along the way that that I like a lot. Whereas, And then there were none, just starts off and keeps going in the same direction in a way that I don't somehow don't find
0: it satisfying right. five little pigs has an ending tonally that's not actually that far from the searcher or some of your books where it's sort of ending on a uh, resolution that is not legal justice and is not exactly it's not exactly a resolution either way it's that like you know the answer but it's not necessarily going to solve all the problems right
2: yeah and and there's an acknowledgement that there probably isn't any answer that would solve all the problems right yeah
0: nothing's going you know nothing is going to bring trey's brother back in the search you know and just like nothing is going to bring carla's parents back in five little pigs they're gone
2: Yeah, yeah, And there's an acknowledgement there, there is a depth to the acknowledgement of that in Five Little Pigs that I think is different from the Christie's that I instantly think of, which are the ones where, oh, well, that's fine, you know, a few people got killed, but now, hey, somebody's getting married, so it's all cool. Whereas in Five Little Pigs, there, there is that sense that while there's been, she is allowed to move forward, Carla is able to move forward in a new way there's still that hole is left. There's that space where her parents should be. And that's still acknowledged as very much a reality.
1: Well, given that you identified Sleeping Murder as your favorite, we also, we, we can't let you go without asking the age old question, Poirot or Marple? It seems like, are you potentially a, a Miss Marple fan over Poirot?
2: No, both both I go back and forth it depends on the book I it really does I like both of them but it, it depends on the book they both have ones where I'm going not so much and ones where I'm just completely smitten like elephants can remember I'm just going this is kind of
0: messy it's um, yeah. not her greatest book <laughs> right
2: <laughs> kind of thing but I think both are- People we'll have ones where I'm going, yeah, the, the maybe, maybe this could have done with a little more editing, one more drop. But others where you're just like, oh, she's on the top of her form and this is so lovely. It's it's I'll, I'll take both, bit of Pro, a bit of Marvel, please.
1: Yeah, we're heading into the 60s, again, because we're we're doing this chronologically. And I think before we started it, we were thinking that, you know, there was a real decline in quality that was steady. But fortunately, that hasn't really been the case. And I think we still have a couple of gems ahead of us, such as Endless Night, okay. yeah, even by the pricking of my thumbs, The Pale Horse. So we do have a, a lot of gems, I think, ahead of us. But yes, there definitely are those ones, especially in the dodgy early 70s period where it's like, ooh, Perhaps this should not have been released when it was.
0: (laughs) You'd be surprised we'll hear from listeners and people will be very angry because we'll have, like, we'll have ranked their favorite one extremely low. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think
2: people are attached to these. Yeah, I have ones probably around from around that same period where I'm not too crazy about them. The ones where there's a lot of complaining about the young people nowadays and the way they dress, you know.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, not to mention some, let's, uh, let's call it problematic depictions of multiculturalism in the UK in like the 60s.
2: Yeah, big time. Oh, hugely. And I think almost, I mean, in, it's pro- probably part of all the same thing, but you've also got straight through that uncomfortable emphasis on heredity. On, you know, I need to find out, even in Five Little Pigs, I need to find out if my mother was a murderer because if she was, I probably should not get married because just in case. Really kind of uncomfortable and tied in with multi- the multiculturalism and tied in with the classism. Well,
0: we had, again, we just covered Ordeal by Innocence and, you know, not mm. not, to, <laughs> not to spoil things too much, but let's just say Kemper and I had some issues yeah, um, we were a little taken aback by that book's uh, sort of obsession with uh, heredity.
2: <laughs> yeah, hugely. Yeah, quite. And and again with race and class, which mm. it all ties in together with this idea that you're completely defined by heredity, not by the individual. Which <laughs> it's very hard <laughs> to connect to that on any level at this stage. I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's something that's undeniable in the experience of reading Christie. I mean, we've, we made the choice when we started not to shy away from it, which is why we actually, when we're ranking, I'm using air quotes here. No one can see me. When we're ranking the novels, we deduct points for elements that feel stuck in their time. But, you know, it obviously also comes from the fact that this is someone who was writing at this point a long time ago and her books are still in print and how, so perhaps it's the ultimate good problem to have as an author. I could imagine, you know, if your novels are being read in 2150, I'm sure there, there might be elements that at least seem, seem strange to readers then. And, and that's kind of also the ultimate when you're talking about perspectives and sharing one's perspective on, on the world in, in different ways. To be able to do that across time is kind of like the ultimate storytelling power.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it can be quite odd, though, because... We're left wondering, okay, how much of Agatha Christie's perspective is the perspective of her time and how much is her perspective as an individual? Because we don't have that much exposure to how people thought in 1920. And so it it can be hard to go. Is she purely defined by the fact that this was 100 years ago for the era, isn't it the 100th anniversary of mysterious affair at styles yes 1920 yeah wow yeah am i having problems with the era or am i having problems with the author
1: it can be hard to distinguish absolutely because she's one person within the era and there i mean there's so much power in that right it's like you by the fact that her works are are some of the few that endure and endure popularly she becomes a stand-in for an era. And that's always going to create a sort of slanted view or inaccurate view because no one person ever could really be representative, but it's both a, a good and a bad thing, I suppose.
0: I mean, and you, yeah. can, you can see the cultural shift, right? You can see in her 1920s, like the Tommy and Toppins stories and partners in crime. And then in the secret adversary, like you can see this sort of charming young cosmopolitan couple and sort of this bright young thing a little bit, and you can see it sort of disintegrate in, you know, like parallel end house, which by the way, of course has a lot in common with secret history and the likeness in a number of ways. So the sort of destruction of youth, I guess. Mm. But you see like the her shifting perspective as time goes on and then by the time you get to something like Hickory Dickory Dock, which is again... <laughs> And not not one of our favorites. Um, Mining her, though, definitely not. <laughs> but, you know, you get, the, you get the same setup, essentially, these young people, educated young people all living together. And, of course, the culture, that's a span of 40 years right there.
2: Yeah, it is a huge gap. And even to watch her, it's funny because you, there are so few authors where you get such an in-depth insight into their attitudes to their society as they go on. And to me, it sometimes feels like a warning, for all of us as we kind of get older, I definitely want to guard against becoming the person sitting there going young people nowadays, they're all dressing funny and when you look at the attitudes on them. It's kind of a warning. Watching Agatha Christie go from the from the points where young people are like this source of vitality and bounce and adventure and courage to the point where they're all just nobody knows how to dress and the girls have no absolutely no appeal and the boys don't even dress like boys anymore. My goodness. They have long hair. They look like girls (laughs) they dress like children and they have this attitude it's it's, it's all arrested development (laughs) awful warning for all of us to kind of not become that as we get older
1: Well, this isn't exactly where I would have predicted that our conversation would end (laughs) with with you, Tana, about both your books and and Agatha Christie and and everything in between. But you know what? So be it. Let's embrace that unpredictability. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I mean, again, it would be embarrassing if we gushed. I think, as much as we could about how much we love your work and how much joy that we personally have gotten out of it. So just to be able to speak with you generally and, and about Christie has just been a dream for us. And we just want to say thank you.
2: Well, thank you so much. Because one of the things about the last, what, what is it now, seven months, is that you don't get out as much. You don't get the chance to go to the pub and chat to friends about, among other things, books. So this has been just a joy for me because I've got to go, oh, let's talk about Agatha Christie for a while with people <laughs> yes. who love her. <laughs> thank you so much.
0: <laughs> oh, we're so, yeah, we were so thrilled that we could make this work. No, no, thank you guys so much. And thank you for the kind words. When it's from
2: people who are totally book crazy and mystery crazy, it means so much.
1: Yeah, well, we can't wait to read the next one. Dublin Murder Squad, standalone. We'll take whatever. we we'll are
0: here for it.
1: <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Tana. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Bye. <laughs>
1: Full disclosure, we talked with Tana for, I think, almost a full half hour (laughs) after we stopped recording that interview because we simply could not get enough of her.
0: But no, it was such a delightful interview, and we were so glad to have had the chance. And, um, you know, she's, of course, welcome back anytime.
1: Yes, that goes without saying, but I suppose now it doesn't since you just said it. So I'm glad you did.
0: I think she was so insightful about the writing process and about, of course, not just her own work, but about uh, mystery and literature and theater as forms of the arts, and I think also the importance of all of the arts, especially in times like these. So, you know, we were, again, thrilled. And as we have previously said during the episode and at the beginning of this, you can buy her latest book, The Searcher. Please support Your local booksellers because they are having as hard a time as anyone during this lockdown, they're missing foot traffic. And I you know know that they appreciate every single bit of business that they're given.
1: No question. Yeah. It was such a treat to be able to speak with someone who thinks so deeply about so many different things and just had mm-hmm. even more interesting insights on a greater variety of topics than I would have predicted before the interview. Can't say enough great things about Tana French. And that is saying something for this fanboy and this fangirl. Um, <laughs> We are enjoying these interviews so much that we are, of course, going to have another interview episode next week. We will be sharing with you our interview with Mark Aldrich, longtime friend of the podcast, who also has a new book out. That would be Agatha Christie's Poirot, the greatest detective in the world. We had a lot of fun perusing Mark's book and then speaking with him about it. And it's all about the Poirot novels and then the many, many, Many adaptations in many different media of those Poirot novels, and there are few people in the world as knowledgeable about uh, Christie as Mark. So I think you're really going to enjoy that episode,
0: unless you think we have forgotten about our tax. After the Mark episode, we will be returning to the Labors of Hercules.
1: Yes, we have our final two stories there. So, uh, just in case you want to do some advanced reading, that would be the Flock of Jerion and the Apples of Hesperides. And in the meantime, of course, we would love to hear from you. Let us know if you have any thoughts on Tana French or anything else. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash all about agatha. We are on Twitter at all about the dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. And our Instagram handle is at all about Agatha. And if you haven't yet done so, please leave us a rating or a review. It helps others find the podcast and we will see you soon. Bye.
0: Bye.